This is the gift of love. I'm reading from 1 Corinthians, chapter 13, commencing at verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions, and if I hand over my body so that I may, may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know only in part, and we prophesy only in part. But when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part. Then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. And now faith... Hope and love abide. These three, and the greatest of these, is love. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Love is our beginning and our end. It's our beginning because God created the world and everything in it, in love. God loves us. All mission, all ministry has its first impulse in the heart of God. When we love, we do so because God loved us first. Love is our middle because in this world we accept the commandment we're given to love God and to love one another. John tells us that whoever loves has been born of God and knows God and anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love and love is our end because we are eternally bound to God he will make his home with us and we will be his people and in our eternal home we will experience God's love in a way which is perfect and glorious and unfiltered So more than any other characteristic, love is definitive of Christian faith. It's held up as our greatest virtue or ethic, especially in the writings of John and in this magnificent passage that we've been looking at from Paul, where he says, three things remain, faith, hope and love, and the greatest of these is love. Well, what is this love to which Paul is referring? Because there's at least... Four different words in the Greek that are translated in English as love. 
So we need to know what we're talking about here. The first one is eros. Um, that's nothing to do with it. That's about romantic attachment. There's another one called storge, which is about natural affection, often within families. There's fraternal love, which is philia, the word philia. Um, that gets a bit closer. Um, an example there is um, the city of Philadelphia. Philia, which is love. Adelphos, brother, the city of brotherly love, um, which I actually think is hugely ironic because um, in the United States, Philadelphia is right at the centre of the Black Lives Matter movement, so maybe uh, brotherly love is um, in short supply. But today, in all of the passages that I refer to, I'll be talking about agape love. And this is the highest and greatest expression of love. It is unconditional, costly, selfless, giving, other-centred love. Uh, and that's what's being referred to in the passage we just read um, from 1 Corinthians 13. Um, the King James Version, interestingly enough, translates it as faith, hope and charity. Um, and uh, all the other translations use love, but I think the translators in using charity in the old King James Version do pick up on one important point, and that's the outward focus, the other-centeredness of this type of love. The problem that was being experienced in Corinth when Paul wrote those words was all about personality cults and kind of competition over spiritual gifts. And... Um, Paul writes this passage as a corrective to that. And this agape kind of love, which is other-centred, about the other, um, really um, puts things in their proper perspective and brings things back into line. So how is this kind of love greater than hope or faith? While all three remain, love cuts through and, I think, reveals the very heart of God. It can transform, reshape, reframe situations for us and whenever we see costly, sacrificial love, we see the heart of love, the heart of God on display. And the passage from Paul illustrates that very nicely. I can have the most amazing spiritual gifts, but if I have no love, it's pointless. It becomes unholy competition. We can all make grand gestures, we can do impressive things, we can give away what we own. But if it's not done out of real love, God is not in any of it. If we're impatient and unkind and envious and proud, there's no room for love. There's no room for God. God will be squeezed out by our own creeping narcissism. If we're vengeful, if we keep score of everyone who's ever wronged us, then how does this reflect God? Jesus teaches us to seek forgiveness, just as we forgive those who have sinned against us. If we discredit other people and go to any lengths to push our own agenda, this is not love, it's the law of the jungle. In writing this, I thought, I might pause and reflect on the recent US election, but I'm going to resist the temptation of doing that. If we gloat at the misfortune of others, if we flirt with evil, if we turn away from difficult or inconvenient situations, that's not love. That's 
laziness or faithlessness. Sometimes it's even cowardice. Love is all about building up, delighting in the truth, forgiving, caring, starting over, enduring. It's said elsewhere that love covers a multitude of sins and I think uh, Peter is right in saying that because when we um, practice putting um, others before ourselves, we begin to see things from their perspective rather than through our own narrow prism. We learn to listen, to behave more respectfully, to seek dignity for the other and in doing that, sin is avoided. When we behave judiciously, not gossiping, not tearing down, not holding things against other people, when we have a kind heart and a forgiving posture, we will not needlessly take offence. And again, sin is avoided. Love is the driving force of the universe. But the kind of love I'm talking about, it's not some kind of soppy, sentimental, shallow thing. Um, and we can take our cue here from the gospel. From the Father's perspective... The gospel is about precious, surrendering love as he releases Jesus to come to be with us, to die for us and to save us. From Jesus' perspective, it's about selfless obedience. Not my will but yours, he says, pouring himself out with forgiveness even on a cross. I'm not sure who the hero of the Old Testament is. It was a challenge put to me by my Greek lecturer some many years ago now. But uh, is it the father with his releasing, surrendering love? Is it Jesus with his selfless obedience? Or is it the Holy Spirit who is so grieved at the... um, chasm in the Trinity that he raises Jesus from the dead. From whatever side we look at it, we see agape love. We see this costly, sacrificial love. And that's no small thing. It's no slight thing. This is the kind of love that can conquer all. It welcomes us all in, the equally undeserving. This love enables us to press on, even when we find that difficult or taxing, It is a love that acts doggedly in the interests of the other. It drives us to go on when we feel that we can't. It's a love that is faultlessly generous, always seeking the common good. This love stands in and stands up for others in their need. It cries out for justice and for dignity. It's a love that rejoices and delights in doing good and it holds nothing back. It it can't hold anything back. This love cannot be contained and it opens up new possibilities. And curiously, it defies the most basic laws of economics because the more of it you give, the more of it you have. Now you might think I'm off on a rant, maybe I am. Um, But as surprising as it may seem, love is not held up as the preeminent ethic in many cultures and religions. Other values very often get top billing, like honour or social caste or piety. 
or power. But for us as Christians, we know that Jesus came to be the loving servant of all and that sets the pattern for us. In the ancient religions, the gods were usually seen as remote, detached, vengeful, nasty, in constant need of appeasement. In contrast, our God comes to us and wants to be with us forever. Our God knows a love with no limit, dying for our sake. In John's Gospel, Jesus says, Greater love has no one than this, to lay down his life for his friends. Well, all I can say about that is he ought to know. This kind of love gives us great confidence because although we might not always feel it, we can never be separated from the love of God. As Paul says, I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons nor the present or the future or powers or heights or depth or anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So yes, there's something great and powerful and life-giving and constant about this love. Well, what does this kind of agape love mean for us in a pandemic? To know it and to experience it is, of course, deeply, personally reassuring. But it will also spur us into action because it is other-centred. And a good place to start is to look at the way the Christian community has faced pandemics in the past. Plagues are nothing new. The church has had to deal with them for millennia. One big one, uh, which was a true pandemic, um, historians believe it was probably Ebola, was the plague of Cyprian. And that started in Ethiopia and it went on for about 20 years, from 250 to 270 AD. It spread uh, throughout the entire Roman Empire, winding up in Rome itself. And in this time, the Christian community really distinguished itself as a volunteer corps um, throughout Roman cities, caring for the dead and the dying. I'm going to read to you um, from uh, Dionysus, who was the Bishop of Alexandria. He, he wrote this in 260 AD. Most of our uh, brother and sister Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves, only thinking of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need, ministering to them in Christ, and with them departed this life. For they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbours. Many in nursing and in curing others transferred death upon themselves and died in their place, losing their lives in this manner, which seems in every way equal to martyrdom. That's from 260 AD. The general populace, on the other hand, simply deserted the sick. They threw the dead and dying out into the street. And the irony was that as the church ramped up its care and was very visible about that, it was persecuted all the more. But it grew and grew and won many people over. In the Middle Ages, plagues resurfaced again, uh, even in Martin Luther's own um, hometown of Wittenberg. That's Martin Luther up there in the top left. Uh, Wittenberg was a university town 
And um, in 1527, uh, there was a, a, not a pandemic, but an epidemic there. And uh, the university decided it was going to remove, move all its lectures and classes to a town further down the road that had not been affected. Sort of like the, the gothic precursor to online learning. You just move it all down the road. But Luther refused to leave. He chose instead to risk his own life in caring for the sick and the dying and he turned his house into a makeshift hospital. As far as Luther was concerned, an epidemic is just one of many evils in the world um, and and we need to be alert to the greater evil of selfish love, love that is concerned only with your own safety. So his basic position was one of prudent concern. Uh, Take due care by all means, but never shirk the responsibility of caring for the sick, the vulnerable and the dying. Now, we don't live in ancient times and we don't live in medieval times and we understand now so much more about what causes pandemics and how they're spread and how in particular that social distancing and isolation are the things that break the chain of transmission to protect the whole community. So the way that we respond now is informed by that knowledge. I think the noble and caring spirit of our Christian forebears can still be honoured, but it must be adapted. So how do we respond as Christians to a pandemic today? I think a few principles can be discerned. And the first is that we lead by example. We respect the government's health advice because we are committed to the welfare of other people. We love our neighbours. And yes, we obey governments, even when we might not agree with them at every point. We do obey them because we are loyal citizens and we care about others. We might even at times go beyond what's required. And I must say here that I think the Anglican Church has um, done that magnificently since this pandemic began. We are people of the truth. So we debunk at every opportunity misinformation, conspiracy theories, some of the nonsense that's said and written about coronavirus. We denounce alternative facts and we resist baseless, dangerous and unscientific claims. Um, One thing I was reading about this week that kind of grieved me was that I mean, the take-up of uh, vaccination in the US has been pretty spectacular. I think over half the population now in the US have had their first jab. This research was drilling down into the cohorts that have been very slow in the uptake. One of the slowest cohorts of all is white evangelical Protestants. And that is a matter for shame. That is a matter of great shame. Um, We have a vital ministry in intercessory prayer. We pray for people who are involved in frontline care in whatever form that might take and we pray for places that are affected by the virus and we must all be thinking about India at this point in time. Whether it's a pandemic or whether it's something else, we should take the time to check in on people um, who we know to be vulnerable. And during the lockdown, I think that this was one of the great strengths of the local church. 
knowing its own community and knowing where needs were likely to be located. Um, I was the beneficiary of that last year. I've already mentioned we had a couple of significant deaths in our family last year and people checked in on us. People checked on our welfare and how we were going and that, that, um, that meant a lot. That was very um, precious to us. Christians have a vital role in consoling the anxious, um, the dying, people who've been bereaved. The work of chaplains is especially important. As followers of Jesus, we do whatever we can to offer practical help where it's needed. And that includes for families that might be under pressure or under strain, uh, whether it's from sickness or something else, whether it's from burnout or depression or loneliness or anxiety or perhaps economic consequences. And we remember too that in many societies around the world, the church and its related institutions are still the primary responders for people afflicted with disease. And one thing we could and should consider is supporting church partners um, in other parts of the world through our aid agencies. So in closing this short series, we celebrate faith and hope and love as uh, great... Uh, virtues of our Christian identity. Faith wells up, it gives us resilience. Hope enables us to endure in the present and we have a vision to look forward to, God's vision for the future that encourages us in the present. And then there's love, which is the greatest of all three. Love shows that we're serious, that we're, we're authentic, that we march to the beat of a different drum. The love of God changes situations. It is active and outward. It is comforting and consoling. It is restoring and it is reassuring. And as we exercise this kind of love, it shows that we are stamped with God's own character. For our God is love. And this is the uniform that we proudly wear. Amen.